In Hebrews chapter 4, we, in the chapter, the writer writes, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Remember the theme of Hebrews chapter 4 is about rest and reward. And there are four exhortations in this chapter that relate to the believer's rest or what it means to enter into a life of rest or the victory that's found in Christ. It's a series of let us therefore. Let us therefore fear in chapter 4 verses 1 through 8 that through disobedience that that through disobedience rooted in unbelief there are those who fail to appropriate the the promises of God that we fail to go forward in perfection or maturation if you will Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 says the full assurance of hope chapter 6 verse 11 talks about inheriting the promises and so he says let us therefore not let us therefore fear and then let us therefore labor in chapter 4 verses 9 through 12 or give diligence to enter into this rest And remember, the rest is the opposite of drifting. It's the opposite of being inconsistent. Maturity in Christ demands discipline and diligence. And again, it's not the the, the rest of salvation that the writer is talking about. He's talking about the rest that comes in living a victorious Christian life. And the secret to entering this rest is the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, if we allow the word of God to judge us and expose us and instruct us, we won't fail to inherit the blessings of God. Israel rebelled against the word of God, refusing to hear God's voice and wound up wandering in the wilderness in defeat for 40 years. And that's what happens when we refuse the word of God. We refuse to embrace it. We refuse to walk in it. We remain spiritually immature. And so it takes diligence and discipline to grow up, to mature, to apply the word of God to our lives. And so the chapter provides two more exhortations, which we've just read. Let us hold fast our profession in verse 14. That word can also be translated confession. I think the old King James says profession and the new King James confession. But here confession means our testimony of faith. Our testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus and his faithfulness to us. We're urged or exhorted to live for Jesus and gain the promised blessings. And again, the Jews who wandered in the wilderness lost their confession even though they experienced the miracle of God and liberation by God and salvation from slavery and Egypt 
They continued to receive guidance and blessing, if you will, and provision. We share the tragic example and miserable testimony of the children of Israel when we experience the saving power of mercy and grace, but then refuse to walk in God's victorious power. And remember what we've already learned, that some of us believe, we believe with all of our hearts God's ability to save us from our sin, but for some reason we don't believe with all of our hearts God's ability to keep us day by day by day. The final exhortation is, let us come to the throne of grace in verses 15 and 16. We have a high priest who knows our temptations and weaknesses, who has endured the tests and passed the tests. And when time of testing and temptation come, we can turn to that throne and obtain help from Christ. And remember the context of the book of Hebrews. These were Hebrew believers, Jewish believers, who were tempted to go back to Judaism. Jesus can and will help us. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to elaborate on that very theme in the chapters that are ahead in this book. So the writer puts the exhortation here at this point in the passage and in our Bible study. He puts this exhortation in the here and the now for the person who's screaming, I don't know that I can go on. I don't know that I can make it through this thing called the Christian life. And maybe sometimes people find themselves in that particular passage or in that particular position in their life where, where they're struggling. They're quite literally struggling as a Christian. Am I going to be able to walk? Am I going to be able to do what the Lord has called me to do? You see, sometimes there are, are voices that scream, I don't have what it takes to be a Christian. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, No believer has strength enough to cross Jordan and conquer the enemy. But we have a great high priest who has mercy and grace to help in the nick of time. That's the literal meaning, by the way, of verse 16. And so, he writes, hold fast your confession. Look again in verse 14. Look what it says. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now again, it seems odd that I should have to say this, but remember the audience. These are Jewish people, Jewish believers for the most part. And so the writer is drawing attention to the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. Why? Because there may have been many Jewish people who were kind of homesick for the religion and for the ritual 
And maybe some of you grew up in a religious circumstance or you grew up in a religious tradition where those religious traditions were deep in your soul. I grew up in a religious tradition that had a lot of ritual. So that even after I became a, a, a Christian, I, I had this incredible urge to go to midnight mass every Christmas. It was hard to beat it back, so to speak. But remember, once again, the emphasis is on the greatness and the superiority of Jesus Christ. The writer draws attention to the fact that Jesus is a great high priest. And remember, the high priest or the priest stood in the place of mediation between man and God. And the credentials Jesus possesses is far greater than the high priests who went before him. The reason Jesus has passed through the heavens. Jesus is before the throne of God. Jesus is in the presence of the supreme being, the self-existent God of the universe. And the writer calls him the son of God. The son of God is Jesus's heavenly name. Jesus lives in the very presence of God. And why is all of this important? Because remember in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there had been a number of different high priests. None of them were ever called great. The humanity of Jesus qualifies him to be our high priest. And the deity of Jesus qualifies him to pass into the heavens and be before the very throne of God. And so again, the writer is making the point that unlike in the religious traditions in which these Jewish people had grown up in, you'll remember that the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies in the temple on the earth once a year in order to offer a sacrifice. Our Jesus, our high priest is in the presence of God continually. And not only is he a living high priest in the presence of God continually, we've already learned that he's interceding for us. And so he says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And what is our confession? The point that the writer is making is that our confession is the testimony of our faith in the Lord Jesus. And remember, for those of you who've been here on Sunday morning and we talked about John the Baptist and we talked about his testimony, that he was a witness. And remember, in order to be a witness, you have to have a knowledge of the facts. You have to have a reputation for honesty. You have to be willing to tell the truth. And so our confession is our testimony it's an admission concerning the truth about Jesus. And in the early church, they wrote creeds that incorporated the basics of our confession. Maybe, again, some of you grew up in a religious tradition where it was normative for you when you would gather together, you would recite the Apostles' Creed. Remember, I believe in one God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, true God of true God, begotten, not made, and the Holy Spirit. You would go through that, that he came, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. 
He's seated at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. Augustine wrote, quote, The faithful must believe the articles of the creed so that believing they may obey God. By obeying may live well. By living well may purify their hearts. And pure hearts may understand what they believe. It wasn't just some sort of litmus test of doctrinal reality. Augustine understood that the reason why people would make their confession of faith wasn't just to convince their brothers and sisters of the reality of having a right relationship with God, but for all of the reasons that he already talked about. So that believing you could obey, and by obeying you, you live a different life. And by living a different life, you experience purity in your heart. And so the writer says, Hold fast to your confession in verse 14, but also go quickly to the throne of grace in verses 15 and 16. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness or weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. And so the writer of Hebrews gives us a glimpse of the significance of the role that Jesus plays as our high priest, as the one who is in heaven, as the one who ever lives. He talks about the high priest's sympathy He talks about the high priest's purity. He talks about the high priest's authority. He talks about the high priest's ability. And we're going to look at all of those. And so when the writer invites us to consider Jesus earlier in the, in the passage, and then he, re, he invites us to consider Jesus as our high priest, he's drawing attention to Jesus' purity and sympathy and authority and ability, all of which are important and all of which provide benefits because Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our high priest. And because he is the high priest, we have access to God's mercy and God's grace. I'm hoping that all of a sudden you're going to begin to understand that. It begins with our Lord's sympathy in verse 15. Who, where it says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. Now we backtrack just for a moment. Remember the last time we met, we talked about verses 12 and verses 13. Remember when the writer said, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
Those passages in chapter 12 and verse 13, when it talks about the Bible, when it talks about the word of God, when it talks about the revelation of God and the word of God, the focus is on scrutiny. Our passage, its focus is on sympathy. I want you to connect the dots just for a moment. If the word of God is powerful and living, and it is, and if the word of God discerns our thoughts and motives, it does. If the word of God is a mirror that reflects our life, if it is an instrument that exposes the truth of what kind of a person we really are, how are we to escape the Bible's judgment about us? Because now all of a sudden you open up the Bible and it tells you the truth about what you're thinking. It tells the truth about what you're feeling. It, it tells the truth about what you're doing. It separates. It cuts. The word of God cuts and separates the proud from the humble spirit. It separates the sinful soul from the righteous spirit. It separates the rebellious soul from the believing spirit. The word of God discerns. And remember that word discern means to sift or to judge or to analyze. And because it sifts and judge and analyzes the thoughts and the intents, it points out the reality of our lost condition and our weaknesses and our difficulties. Now, I want you to think about this. The King James Version says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities or who cannot sympathize. The Greek language is very helpful here. It's soon Pathe, say I, suffer with. Soon means together. Pathe, say I, is a word that means the sense of feeling. It's where you connect with the sense of, of feeling. On my radio program today, I had a man who, um, in the 1990s, along with his father and his brother, robbed the Stardust Hotel in Las Vegas and stole over a million dollars. They were the original kind of Ocean's Eleven guys, only it didn't turn out the way that they had hoped. And he went to jail. And he had a hard and bitter heart. And he thought Christians and Christianity were for losers and he had a small daughter named Amanda. And someone approached him about giving a gift at Christmas for his daughter. And this hard-hearted man became a broken-hearted man. And he began to understand things that he didn't understand before about life and love. You see... The word who cannot sympathize, it means to feel, to suffer with. It means to sympathize and feel with a person. The idea is to the point that the hurt and the pain are actually felt within the other person's heart. For those of you who don't have advanced degrees in, in counseling or therapy or psychology... 
you may not know the difference between empathy and sympathy. Empathy is the idea of understanding and appreciating what another person's feeling. Sympathy is the idea that you begin to enter into those very feelings. Their pain becomes your pain. Their loss becomes your loss. Their suffering becomes your suffering. And so the idea is that Jesus suffers when we suffer. He knows and he suffers with us. And for this person who went to prison, he could certainly, he understands what it's like to go to prison, what it's like to have the door shut, what it's like to think about what your life is and where your life is going. Jesus knows and suffers with us. Does Jesus know what it means to be sick? Does he know what it means to experience trial? Does he know... What it means to face temptation or sense loneliness or experience emptiness or profound grief or loss or poverty or nakedness or suffer persecution, incarceration. The list could go on and long. Does Jesus know what it's like to face death? Does Jesus know what it's like to face the prospect of a painful and prolonged death in your own mind? Think of a trial. You name the test. You name the temptation. And now ask yourself the question. Does Jesus understand me? Does he understand what I feel? Does he understand what I'm going through? And so the writer is basically reminding us that we couldn't ask for a greater savior. We couldn't ask for a greater intercessor. We couldn't ask for a greater high priest because Jesus, Jesus, Jesus knows human life. He knows its joys. He knows its sorrows, the temptation and the trial. So he speaks of the Lord's sympathy because I'm going to suggest to you that the word of God, when it shines the light on your heart and begins to scrutinize you at the most fundamental level and you discover what's really going on, that you need sympathy. That you need a savior who understands your circumstances. So there's sympathy, but also, look what it says, purity, yet without sin. By the way, does sympathy require impurity? In order for a person to understand the depths of sin or the consequences of sin, do you have to sin? I don't think so. Do you have to sin to really suffer the effects of sin? That's part of the argument. The writer says, Jesus knew no sin. So why is this important? Because it serves as the foundation for salvation. No one can be saved, ever, unless Jesus was really sinless. 
You're not saved and I'm not saved. If Jesus blew it, if Jesus made a mistake, if Jesus sinned, you want to know why? Because God required a pure life and a holy life and a sinless life. And that's why you're disqualified. No offense. I hope you're all thinking none taken. But Jesus led a pure life and a holy life and a sinless life because only perfection can stand before God. God commands and demands perfection. When Jesus spoke to the religious leaders in John chapter 8, in verses 45 and 46 and 47, it says, But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? It was his way of saying, Ollie, ollie, outs and free. If any one of you can point to some area of rebellion or disobedience or of dishonoring God, now's the time. He says, and if I tell you the truth, why won't you believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you don't hear me because you are not of God. But the religious leaders at that point accuse Jesus, not of any particular sin or transgression. You know what they accuse him of? Of being demonically possessed. They accuse him of being demonically possessed. Possessed because this is the only explanation that the religious leaders can come up with in order to explain the supernatural power that Jesus has because he's opening blind eyes and deaf ears. He's cleansing the leper. He's changing people's lives. But Jesus answers their accusation by saying, I'm, I don't have a demon. I honor my father. And you dishonor me. I don't seek my own glory, but there is one who judges. And most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And do you remember how the religious leaders responded? Are you greater than our father Abraham? Are you trying to tell us, boy, we've never seen anyone with such a messianic complex as you. And you remember his response? Before Abraham was, I am. And the religious leaders knowingly, purposely, and specifically picked up stones to kill him. And he said, for which good deed are you stoning me? And he goes, not for any good deed that you've done, but you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. This would have been the perfect time for Jesus to say, wow, there's been a terrible misunderstanding here. I never claimed to be God. I'm just a regular guy. Or maybe a regular guy who never sinned, but that wouldn't make you a regular guy. William Barclay writes, quote, He is like us in all things, except that he emerged from it all completely sinless. The fact that Jesus was without sin necessarily means that he knew the depths and the tensions and the assaults of temptation, which we never know and we never can know, so far from his battle being easier 
it was immeasurably harder. Why? For this reason. We fall to temptation long before the tempter has put out the whole of his power. We are easily vanquished. We never have temptation at its fiercest and its most terrible because we fall long before that stage is reached. But Jesus was tempted as we are and far beyond what we are. For in his case, the tempter puts everything he possesses into the assault and Jesus withstood it. Barclay writes, think of it in terms of pain. There is a degree of pain which the human frame can stand. And when that degree is reached, a person faints and loses consciousness. He's reached his limit. There are agonies of pain he does not know because there comes collapse. It is so with temptation. We collapse before temptation. But Jesus went to our to our stage of temptation and far beyond it and still did not collapse. It is true to say that he was tempted in all things as we are, but it is also true to say that never was a man tempted as he was, unquote. I love that illustration because some of you, a doctor or a dentist might say to you, what is your pain threshold? And they pull out a needle and you faint dead away but some of you have a fairly high pain threshold I love the illustration of gold in the fire when I first came to the front range obviously Denver's a mining town and there are several different places where silver and gold is assayed and I went to a particular place where they refined gold and and they showed me the process of taking the ore and leaching it and and the refinement process to make sure that the impurities are removed and and they place the gold in crucibles and they repeatedly heated it and and the impurities were removed and they did it over and over and over again again but once the process was complete then the gold was sent to an assayer and once again the gold is placed in a crucible it's heated and melted one final time but that heating and that melting isn't to remove impurities because all of the impurities are already gone it's for the assayer to put his signature on it, it doesn't remove the impurities, but rather it demonstrates that the gold is indeed pure. And so the temptations of the Lord aren't intended to see if Jesus will sin, but rather to prove that he is sinless. We're placed into the fire to remove impurities. Jesus was placed in the fire to prove his purity. Why is that important to you? Because only a pure savior can make you pure. The moment that you're willing to admit, I'm impure. And Jesus says, I'll be your purity. I will be what you could never be. 
And the moment that you trust him for exactly that, you're chosen, you're adopted, you're accepted in the beloved. No wonder the writer of Hebrews says, let us therefore come boldly. Look what it says. It's amazing. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. The throne of grace speaks of our Lord's authority. You know what a throne is. A throne is the place where the sovereign renders a verdict. And so here he combines two words, sovereignty, the throne, and grace, unmerited generosity. So throne means the place where justice or mercy or judgment originates. This is the place where the believer is received by divine sovereign grace as Christ was received. We're accepted by God according to the full and the finished work of Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Again, in the Old Testament, could a Jewish person go boldly? into the Holy of Holies and address the mercy seat. Never, never, ever. Only the high priest, only once a year, only with blood. And according to some traditions, they would actually tie a rope around him with a bell because there was a very good chance that if anything went wrong, he would be struck dead And when the bell stops, they would take the rope and drag him out of the place because no one, no one, no one dared go in. And if you ever saw that movie about Indiana Jones and the the Ark of, of the Covenant where these people go and they inappropriately approach it and then they're just sort of consumed by fire and their, their heads melt and their eyes melt and everything melts off of them. That's a fairly good image that I get from the scriptures concerning people who inappropriately presume on the holiness of God. But look what the writer says. The writer urges the reader to access bold the throne. Why in the world would he say, come boldly? Because you can. In the ancient world, if you approached a sovereign throne, unwelcome or uninvited, it was completely up to the sovereign to order your death. You'll remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Hebrews, where Esther approaches the king And if for whatever reason the king is displeased with that presumption, he could have had her killed. But when you approach the throne, you can come boldly. Because look what the writer is inviting you, not just to believe, but to act on. There's no fear, there's no fear, there's no fear, there's no fear, there's no fear of rejection, there's no fear of rejection, there's no fear of rejection. Think of all of the people in your life and think of all of the circumstances in your life. Have you ever been afraid to apply for a job because you might not get the job or or enter into an educational program because you might not make it through the program or enter into a relationship but you thought that maybe this person wouldn't accept you but they would that they would reject you? 
or you were afraid to continue in, into a friendship or you were afraid to tell them the truth about your life or about your circumstances. We live in this world where we wonder whether or not we will be accepted. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, you have the right to go to heaven's throne and you don't have to fear being rejected. You don't have to fear being rejected. Jesus isn't going to reject you. Jesus is in heaven. Jesus has made the full expiation. That's just a big theological word, which means satisfaction with his own blood. It's exactly what we sang about Jesus, our high priest, that we are accepted by his blood. John Piper writes, grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. Therefore, the effort we make to obey God is not an effort done in our own strength, but in the strength which God supplies. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing, that the throne of God becomes a luscious well of inexhaustible grace. The writer connects Christ's authority to Christ's grace. Grace has been called God's riches at Christ's expense. Matthew Henry wrote, Grace is the free, undeserved goodness and favor to mankind. Unquote. We can think of grace as the favor of God which he freely gives without regard to human merit for those who trust him and believe the gospel. The writer connects Christ's authority to Christ's grace and so Sympathy, purity, authority, ability. Look what it says. Look what it says about you. That we, that's you and me, that we may obtain mercy and find grace. Now all of a sudden we understand verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And what do does the word of God reveal about the thoughts and intents of our heart? What does it reveal about the circumstances of our life? What does it reveal about our spiritual condition? That we are people who need mercy and grace. <laughs> And see, when you come to grips with that, with you, when you're honest about that, mercy is a word that in the ancient world often spoke of God's relief of human misery. In the ancient world, when people would use the term mercy, it meant that someone in a position of authority or help could look at a person and they could alleviate their suffering. They could alleviate their pain. They could alleviate those circumstances. And whenever you've seen a person say, mercy, crying out for mercy, 
It was an invitation for the person who had the ability to relieve the pain, to relieve the misery, to relieve the suffering. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, it says, And God, and God, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance For every good work. Paul is writing about. An amazing stream of mercy. And an amazing measure of grace. I've told you guys this story so many times. But it it reminds me of the woman in England. Who saw the ocean for the first time in her life. And she started to weep and cry. And they said. Why are you crying? And she said, I've never seen anything that there was so much of it that there was enough for everyone. That's exactly the meaning here of grace, that there's so much of it, that there is so much of it, that there's more than enough for everyone. John Stott wrote, grace is love that cares and stoops And rescues. And so the writer knows what our Lord knows. That we need mercy. Let me put it to you a different way. Does the Lord Jesus Christ know that you need mercy? Does he know that you need grace. According to this passage, is there enough mercy and grace to sustain you? And now we begin to understand what Paul meant when he prayed three times for this difficulty to go away and it wouldn't go away. And he prayed once and he prayed twice and he prayed three times and the Lord spoke to him and said, my grace is sufficient. But in verse 16, when it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace. I want to draw your attention right to the end of the passage where it says, to help in time of need. The writer seems to sense that the time of need is personal. An individual. In other words, it isn't just in my time of need, but in your time of need, and 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 in your time of need. In other words, there is the grace and the mercy that is available for everyone at exactly the right moment in exactly the right proportions in times of personal weakness in times of personal temptation in times of personal sin in times of personal failure what is the writer saying we have access to God through 
Christ for our personal problem in order to get exactly what we need. And I'm going to suggest to you that it isn't just simply limited to mercy and grace in order to be saved, but the entire context is so that you can have mercy and grace in order to live a victorious Christian life in the here and the now every day, day in and day out, because you don't have to go back. You don't have to go back to your old life. You don't have to go back to the old way of living. You're invited to go forward instead of backwards. The writer of Hebrews is trying to convince you that God has made an adequate provision for the Christian. Remember the historical context, the messianic believer. Remember the real practical application. It's to every Christian who wants so much to live in victory. And remember the context that you can walk away from an evil heart of unbelief and you can walk into the promises of God that are found in Christ. And since Jesus knows our nature, is fallen, and because he knows our need, we need mercy and grace. The writer of Hebrews says, It's okay. It's okay to trust him. The believer can fully rest in Christ's work for him or her. Our conscience is cleansed by Christ's blood. The law and the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, has set us free from the law of sin and death. And so, the invitation, rest from guilt. Rest, deliverance from the power of sin. Rest in your identification with Jesus. In his death and burial and resurrection and journey to heaven. Remember, that's the confession of your faith. Rest. Why? Because you have the Lord's approval. Rest. Because you have the example of Jesus. Rest. Because you have the all-sufficient assistance of Jesus. Rest. Because you have a high priest who understands your struggles, who understands your weaknesses, and is at this very moment, at this very moment, at this very moment, praying for you, interceding for you. He knows your heart. He knows your circumstance. He knows the weakness. He knows the failure. He knows the doubt. He knows the despair. He knows the difficulty. Let us therefore fear that disobedience and unbelief will keep us from going forward instead of backwards. Let us therefore labor or diligently walk, or carefully walk. Let us therefore hold fast the confession. Not our salvation. Our salvation is already held fast. Jesus is holding fast. 
your salvation. And so, let us come to the throne of grace. Why? Because the scrutiny of the Bible gives way to the sympathy of our Savior because the Bible reveals what we've always known. I need mercy. It's available. I need grace. It's available. Sympathy. Purity. Authority. Ability. This is the promise that the text is making. Jesus will grow you up. Jesus will mature you. Jesus will protect you. Jesus will sustain you against the trial, against the temptation, against the doubt, against the fear. And now guess what you get to do? Walk in victory instead of defeat. You get to go forward instead of backward. We're going to have communion. And uh, what I'd like you to do is just, again, hold the elements of the communion until we all have an opportunity to partake together. So let's pray. And hopefully Chet and the rest of the people will come out and we'll distribute the elements of communion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you and praise you and glorify you, Lord. Heavenly Father, you've made it abundantly clear that there's a better rest for the believer because Jesus is superior to religion and ritual. That Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the source of what we need the most. Mercy and grace. And that, Lord, when we are walking through times of difficulty, and I know so many people are right now. For many people, there's a sense of uncertainty. For some, even tragedy. For most, difficulty. And we have a choice. To go backwards or to go forwards. And so, Lord, again, we pray that we would heed the exhortations. Let us, let us, let us go forward. Let us believe. Let us, with a whole heart and complete confidence, confess what we know to be true about Jesus and his love. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts. And that you would speak, Lord, healing and rest to the weary, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.